Thank you for listening to sermon podcasts from the Anglican Church Noosa. This is week two in the Kingdom Come series, and today's topic is Ascending Kingdom. The Bible passage is Matthew 9, 35 through to chapter 10, verse 15, and the preacher is Peter Bloomfield. Our second reading comes from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through to chapter 10, verse 15. This can be found in your pew Bibles on page 974, 974. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not... Let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. The um, question before us this morning is ascending kingdom, ascending kingdom. And in this text today that Ray just read for us, uh, you notice how our Lord, our Lord Jesus sends 12 disciples out to begin that kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. But there are some surprising issues here for us in this text. And those issues should shape our thinking and they should even shape how we speak 
as we continue this kingdom-building work in our 21st century. And there are three issues that I want to draw to your attention. They're the ones I've listed for you there. You notice that all those disciples, they're all imperfect. And by the way, that gives you and I a job, doesn't it? We, we fit in. You'll notice also, secondly, Jesus authorised them. All these disciples were authorised by the king to go and do this task. And then, thirdly, the disciples were all focused. There were two poles for their focus, on those who received and welcomed them and on those who did not, and both are an important part of the gospel. So let's take them one at a time. Firstly, the disciples were all imperfect. You notice that uh, Peter denied Jesus three times on one night. In fact, he did it very brazenly because Jesus warned him he was going to do it. And Peter boasted, even if everybody else does it, Lord, no way I'll do it. Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times, Peter. So it was a very, very bold error. Uh, James and John, they both had a fiery nature, so Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They weren't meek and mild like all of us at all. Bartholomew, who was also called Nathaniel. Bartholomew spoke very dismissively of Jesus' hometown, didn't he? Remember the question he asked? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I wouldn't have thought that was the best start for a young evangelist. Thomas, I don't go through the whole lot, but Thomas, you remember... At least at the beginning, he did not believe the resurrection of Christ. He changed his mind later when he saw the risen Christ. But the point I'm making is all, all the disciples were imperfect. But yes, it's true, our biggest problem uh, comes with Judas Iscariot. The, the others were at least Christians, but this treacherous man, as you know, sold Jesus to his enemies for 30 30 trinkets, 30 little bits of silver. And this whole issue with Judas should affect us in at least a couple of ways. I'm going to suggest there's a question that we need to avoid and there is a lesson we need to learn. The question we need to avoid, we should avoid asking question like, a question like this, an inappropriate question, why did Jesus include Judas among the 12 disciples, given that Jesus already knew that Judas would betray him. So why include him among the 12? Well, you know as well as I do, folks, the Bible makes no attempt whatever to answer that question. And we should recognise that just below that question, I think there's very often human pride. By the way, I'm not just talking to you folks, I think we're all guilty of this. But just below that question probably unintended and probably unconsciously so, but very subtly concealed is this human pride. The agenda is, if I was God, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have included Judas. If only God had asked my opinion, I would have advised him against it. You get the idea this is getting a little bit audacious. Yes, there are some why questions that are totally legitimate, in fact, the, the whole riches of that study called systematic theology basically come from dealing with the why questions. But we must beware there are some also illegitimate why questions. 
And if we don't know the difference between the appropriate why questions and the illegitimate ones, we take a big risk, and that risk is that we may insult God. Think about the essence of the why Judas question. What is that question actually doing? What is actually happening here? I've just got to flick these um, slides through a bit. Yeah. In essence, think with me about this. In essence, the why Judas question, it's actually treating God as if he's just a man. And so it summons us God into our court of inquiry. Why God? And demands that he explains himself. It presumes that the almighty God should answer to us mere men. That's pretty awful when you think about it. It interrogates God as if he's in court on trial. Why'd you do that, God? It wants God to tell the truth, the whole truth. Um, To make it really graphic, it's as if we put a Bible in God's hand and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? But see, unless you paint it like that, we probably don't get the audacity of the question. So friends, hang in there. That's, That's the issue. And I think we'd all agree this is a long way from humility to start firing at questions that God is not humble. And even if God condescended to answer that question, how proud is it for us humans to think that our limited intelligence could match his answer? Can we plumb the depths of the whole cosmos and understand the eternal, infinite and omniscient answers of God? I suspect that none of us is blameless here. I can only speak for myself. I'm not blameless here. We all do this sort of thing to some degree at some time regarding some issues. So, friends, let's get a resolve out of this text. Let's stop interrogating God. There's a couple of texts I'll share with you that will really strengthen us and help us to do that. One that I think is a really helpful text to have uh, beside us all the time, this text here. Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses speaks. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Oh, pause. There are secret things. God hasn't told us everything. He didn't tell us why he chose Judas. Why should he? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. So Moses says, God has not revealed every detail about how he runs the universe. Imagine how big the Bible would be if he did that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, putting in modern English means they're none of our business. They're not our business. Stop asking God why questions like that. What is our business? Well, Moses says, the things revealed, what is written in the word of God, the things revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. That's a very, very significant text. Another one is this one in Isaiah 55. It's a very powerful call for humility, where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I'd like to summarise it this way. We, the finite, cannot sit down and discuss policy with God, the infinite one. 
it, we need to come back to these texts. And one more that I really think is, will help us, it's Paul himself, the apostle. Very powerfully opposes these inappropriate why questions. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Shall a mere creature say to the one who created it, why did you make me like this? Why did you put Judas in this lot? So there are some, that's a question we need to avoid, that inappropriate why question. But there's also, I think, a lesson here, a lesson that we should learn about the Judas being a part of the twelve. Judas Iscariot is not the last of his kind, folks. Do you know that every denomination in every age of history has suffered from bad leaders who betray Jesus in one way or another? We are not to honour them, we're not to support them, just because of their high rank or status in the church. On the contrary, I hope we can all agree, they should be dismissed. For the honour of the truth they're supposed to claim, teach, and for the honour of God whose name they bear, they should be dismissed. Can I just share a personal case? I was involved in a very difficult, sad case in 1992 when I was still minister at Bald Hills Presbyterian. I was a delegate at the General Assembly being held in Sydney, Presbyterian Church of Australia. A minister who denied the resurrection of Christ was on trial for heresy. He was found guilty. Two years later, I've got it here, two years later he published his defence in, in a book written by himself called Heretic. I'm happy to show it to you if you really want to torture yourself. He wrote this book and the heresies we heard at that General Assembly are nothing compared to what you find in this book. He admitted denying the resurrection, but it goes way worse than that. He doesn't believe the Bible. He regards us as flat earth society people, all the rest of us. He, he regards us as bigoted, narrow-minded people who believe every word in the Bible. It goes on and on and on. So when I say to you that Judas Iscariot is not the last of his kind, there's one example I could fill an hour or two with many others. So friends, there are still men like Judas in the Christian church and there always will be and until Christ returns that is the case. So let's learn the lesson, let's not be gullible. Uh, but of course none of this means that we should be suspicious, negative and sceptical people. But it does mean one thing. Some of you here will remember. What was the great cry of the Protestant Reformation? The great cry was sola scriptura. Scripture alone. No matter what a man says, no matter what a scholar says, no matter what the majority of human beings say, that is not the truth. We go to Scripture and we test everything we hear out of every speaker's mouth by Scripture alone. That really comes out very clearly, doesn't it, in Acts chapter 17, where these Berean Jews are referred to. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul says was true. So they even examined Paul, the apostle. And I used to always tell my congregations, and I'm happy to repeat it today, don't you believe what I'm saying to you because I'm up here as a preacher. You go home and check it against the Bible. 
And if it is in accord with the Bible, and I sincerely think it is, I'm sure it is, but you believe it because it's in accord with the Bible, not because Peter said it or anybody else said it. That is the only reason for believing X, Y, or Z. Sola Scriptura. Well, let's move on to the second main thing in our text today, and that is that the, the disciples were all authorised. Notice how we read that when Jesus sent these original missionaries out, he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. In other words, these miracles were their ID papers, their registration papers, if you like, that certified them as God's authentic messengers who spoke the truth of God. But there's a problem here, isn't it? The problem is we live in an age when the word miracle is often misused to describe anything that we can't easily explain. It may be an unexpected recovery from illness or sickness of some sort. I notice, I think I've got a paper here, yes. Just this week you would have seen it. Here it is here. Miracle in the Amazon. Where, thankfully, quite a good number of children were saved after being lost in the jungle for 40 nights. We all praise God for that. And we acknowledge it's a wonderful work of God, but friends, not all wonderful works of God are miracles. A miracle has a specific biblical meaning. They are the ID papers. They are the registration plates, if you like, for true apostles who are sent out. I think um, if you look at the, uh, what Mark writes in his 16th chapter, Mark makes that very clear. He's crystal clear and he says, the Lord worked with them, that is the, the early church, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. They were ID papers. Miracles proved that the messengers had God's authority and spoke God's truth. Remember Moses? That's why Moses performed miracles. He turned his staff into a serpent, you remember? Here's the big one, I reckon. He turned the Nile River into blood. Try that sometime without the authority of God. He turned his hand leprous and then he cured it again. Why was that? Well, the Bible says, Exodus 4, this is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to him, that is Moses. Same is true of Jesus. Remember Jesus? Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, authorised, proved by God to you. How? By miracles, wonders and signs. And not just things we can't explain, miracles. They are the ID papers for God's sent out messengers. We, we, we dare not misuse biblical language. Paul himself refers to the same thing, doesn't he? He calls them the accrediting marks of an apostle. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. So again, let me repeat so you don't get me wrong, folks. Yes, God does many wonderful things day by day for all of us, no doubt about that. Unexpected healings are wonderful things, but we should, and we should praise him for it, of course, but 
my dear friends, not all God's wonderful works are miracles. Miracle is a very specific and pointed biblical term. And with the completion of the New Testament, when you think about it, there's no more purpose for miracles. Rephrase the question, are there miracles today? Is really asking, are there still inspired prophets today like Moses? Are there still apostles today who need to be proven to us, authenticated to us? Is God still giving new, ref- new revelation through his inspired messengers and he needs to confirm it by letting them do miracles for us? In every case, I think you can see the answer is no. Ah, ah but hang on to this. There are false miracles. There are certainly false miracles. Satan has not shut down his factory. Has he? So Jesus makes this warning very clear. False messiahs and false prophets will appear. And let me just add, and they are still appearing in our generation, folks. They will appear and people will perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, says Jesus, I've told you beforehand. Satan's factory is at work today wherever there are religious groups around the world that claim miracles and miracle workers. And there are literally hundreds of them. Hundreds. And the trouble is, deceived people, they see these alleged miracles and that makes them swallow the false teaching of these miracle workers. See, I've told you beforehand, Jesus said, so you won't fall for it. My dear friends, I hope you can see it's no trivial matter to misuse the word miracle because what it does, it debases the true biblical meaning of the word miracle. And now the third big issue in the text, um, the disciples were focused. And you'll notice that their kingdom work was made to be focused by three commands that Jesus gave and they concerned the audience, the baggage and the message. First of all, regarding the audience, notice what he says. He says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven has come. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received and freely give. Now, we all know that although the kingdom work would soon spread to all the nations, you can see here that at this early stage, it focused only on the Jews. And you might now raise that why question. Uh, And let me say, because you might throw it back on me, who've just been speaking about illegitimate why questions, this one is legitimate. Why? Because it's answered in the text. Why was the mission focused on the Jews alone at this early part? Well... It's because of the abysmal condition of Christ's fellow countrymen. Notice what the text says. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you know the history here. The leaders of Israel were the very opposite of shepherds who looked after a flock of sheep. Their leaders were the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes and they had no idea of the true kingdom of God. The New Testament is absolutely clear on that. 
they in fact were fanatically opposed to the kingdom and to the king, Jesus the Messiah. They were only interested in one thing, these leaders of Israel. They were interested only in legalistic trivia, nothing else. To them, God's kingdom was all about keeping numerous rules. Rules, rules, rules and more rules. The Pharisees were absolutely expert at making rules. And Jesus says they burdened the backs of the fellow Jews with all these rules as if getting into the kingdom of God is a burdensome task of keeping every single bit of these rules every single day of your life or you're gone. That's the shepherds of Israel. So Jesus condemned them. The teachers, he said this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to remove them. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your tiny little spices, your mint, your dill and your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of law like justice, mercy and faithfulness. So keep that background in mind, friend. Friends, that's, that is why when Jesus saw these ordinary people feeling harassed and helpless, that's why Jesus sent the, the 12 out to the Jews first. Come to me, they will say, come to me all who are weary and burdened. They're the people who are burdened. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Not like the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. Not this tedious burden of laws, 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 rules, rules, rules. Jesus is motivated by a completely different thing, mercy, not legalism. What does he say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd makes a whole lot of rules for his sheep. No, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. My burden is light, I'm not a burden. But there was another instruction Jesus gave the 12 disciples regarding their baggage. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his keep. Keep in mind, folks, missionary societies did not exist back then. This is the beginning of missions. There was no CMS back in that first century or any other missionary society for that matter. Yet Jesus agrees the missionaries will need material support. They need things like clothing and shoes and food. So the question is, how would these original 12 disciples how would these original missionaries survive if they can't take the things they need with them? Their unique situation in history explains the answer from Jesus. He says they're not to carry any baggage since their needs are going to be met by another way. God has already gone before them and he's already softening the hearts of people in the towns and villages they're going to visit. And in those towns they will find some hospitable people who will provide their needs for them. 
and they're to stay at those worthy houses. But our context today, in the 21st century, that's not the same, is it? Now the normal support for missionaries is from properly administered groups like CMS and others, supported by Christian people like us in our congregation here and others around. They, the CMS, for example, sends out properly trained kingdom workers and it's our privilege to support them as we can. But that was not the way it was when Jesus sent out the 12. And then one final thing we need to just keep in mind, he gave them directions about their message and it's got two dimensions to it. The disciples were to indicate God's blessing upon anybody receptive to the gospel truth. As you enter the home, give it your greeting, says Jesus. Give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. Uh, But there is a but. But others were to be warned of judgment and the wrath of God. What does Jesus say? If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. In other words, have nothing to do with that. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now, friends, you might think, what's it got to do with me? The, tr- the essential truth of what Jesus says there is exactly the same today, the essential truth. Namely, it is unfaithful to teach the truth about heaven and yet remain silent about hell. It's no good talking to people about be saved by coming to Jesus. Saved from what? Unless they have a concept of hell, they don't know what to be saved from. I wonder, did you know this? This is my last finishing little comment here. Did you know that it's a matter of historical fact that many, many people became Christians after hearing a sermon that clearly spelled out what hell is? There are so, I've got so many books on my bookshelf at home with examples. A classic example is the famous 18th century sermon by a man called Jonathan Edwards. It certainly wouldn't have gone down well on Channel 9 News, the title of his sermon. The sermon was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Whew. Even powerful, look, you read the, read the title, it's fairly powerful. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you know that everybody who heard it was profoundly disturbed by that sermon. As a result, huge numbers of people begged for mercy and became Christians. He preached it in two different cities in America and we are told by onlookers and observers, not even people who are Christians, that grown men and women fell down in the street crying and sobbing and asking God, please have mercy on me, Lord. And the fruits of that one sermon continued for many, many years after it. It was a great revival in America from 1730 to 1755, 25 years at least, due to a sermon like this. It's called The Great Awakening. You can read about it. You can Google search it. What I find ironical is all these people entered heaven while Edwards is shaking off the dust for his feet. God uses the truth about wrath and judgment to make people want salvation because they now understand what the alternative is. It's awful. Let's close with this. 
other text. Entry into God's kingdom is a narrow way. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was very emphatic about that. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through that. But the gate is small and narrow that leads to life, and only a few find it. Friends, I am grateful for your patience in listening to this. Maybe this is not what you expected to hear out of this text. I believe before God I've taught you exactly what this text means in its context. I didn't find an easy sermon to preach, let me tell you, but I didn't choose to preach this sermon. I was doing what I was asked to do. But the truths here are so important. I think we live in an age where Christianity has often lost its cutting edge and we need to regain it. Those disciples were told, don't lose your cutting edge. Peace upon those who receive you and your message but it'd be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on those who don't. And I think unless we do that, we are not being faithful to God or to our fellow men. So I hope you'll think it through. We do praise God for his kingdom and for using imperfect people like us to extend that kingdom. But friends, let us be resolved. Let's extend that kingdom in the way Jesus commanded by using those same truths that we've been thinking about this morning. All praise to our God. Can, I just, uh, can you join me in prayer? Lord, this is in many ways a hard-hitting text, but we agree, Lord, there are times when we do become forgetful of truth. We do become lopsided in the way we understand your kingdom. We thank you for the truths that we've been thinking about. May we think on them day and night, and may we become the better servants of the living God because of it. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Anglican Church Noosa is an evangelical Anglican church on the northern end of the Sunshine Coast, Queensland, Australia. Our vision is living to love and proclaim Jesus. Our core values are being Christ-centred, Bible-based, spirit-led and mission-shaped. If you have found this sermon helpful, and would like to contribute to the ongoing ministry of ACN, please go to our website, anglicanchurchnoosa.org forward slash giving. Thank you for listening.